Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As the most famous conductor of the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman was known as Moses, leading hundreds of enslaved people to freedom. Less is known about her role in espionage for the Union Army during the Civil War. We'll hear that fascinating story as told by Elizabeth Cobbs in her book, The Tubman Command. Booksellers' books and their readers are the focus of today's City Life. Children's stories can have a lasting impression on our lives. Books we cherish as kids may remain with us through adulthood. It's bold to open and operate an independent children's bookshop. That determination is stated in the name Brave and Kind, a bookstore located in Decatur. Bunny Hilliard is the owner of the bookshop, and she's with us now via Zoom. Bunny, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, delighted to talk with you. First off, I should ask, what were some of your favorite books when you were younger? So when I was younger in elementary school, I read a lot of Ramona Quimby, so... Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary and those those kinds of books just about being a little girl and, and being a kid. And now that you can curate for kids, what sort of books are you offering at Brave and Kind? At Brave and Kind, our goal is to be very intentional about sharing books that have children, characters, and stories with children of color and different abilities and are very inclusive of people of all kind of backgrounds and families and family dynamics. Yeah, because children's stories are not just for children. Um, Many children's stories contain important lessons about morals and ethics. And children's books can be a wonderful way to approach difficult subjects. As you stated in your introduction, and as we printed our very first bookmarks for the bookstore to include in and with every purchase as a quote, actually from the movie, You've Got Mail, which I was quite obsessed with (laughs) for a time. Uh, And it says, when you read a book as a child, it becomes a part of your identity in a way that no other reading in your whole life does. And I think that's very true. Um, And as I mentioned, when the books that I read as a child largely had faces on them that did not look like my own, which at that particular time imparted on me kind of a sense that in order to be a character in a book or to be a person on television, then this is what I needed to look like. And that person did not look like me. As I envision creating this space, uh, had that in mind as I chose books that um, cherished and and celebrated uh, books of people of all colors and, and backgrounds. Well, 
One of the titles your shop offers is Something Happened in Our Town, a child's story about racial injustice. At what age do you begin to make children aware of these tough realities, often terrible realities? Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult and personal family dynamic conversation. I think we do have to make children very aware of the world that they are growing up in so that they feel empowered to speak up and speak out against unfairness and, and recognize that as well. In the description that you see on the website, I do also say, you know, parents, I would suggest that you read this book to yourself before you decide to share it with your children, because I do think it's important to be able to have these conversation starters, but also, I want to say control the narrative, but be uh, aware of the narrative so that you can speak to your child in a way that resonates with them and that you feel like will be a very fruitful conversation. But it can also be very traumatic as well, especially I'm a mother of two. I have a daughter who's 11 and a son who is eight. And I certainly don't want him to go to bed at night feeling like he has to be afraid that the police might harm him. You know, while we may read these types of, of books, together as a family, I am also very conscious of guarding their mental state as we share these stories as well. And one thing I'd also really like to say is that it is equally important to share stories featuring children and voices and characters of color that celebrate their lives, that include just that, children being children, enjoying what every child enjoys doing, riding their bikes and flying their kite and playing with their friends and learning something new. You know, part of our, our, the name of our store is Brave and Kind. And so it is our hope that the children will find stories in our space that inspire them to do and to be brave and kind. You know, I mentioned that growing up, one of my favorite books or the things that I enjoyed reading were Ramona Quimby and Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom. And so Renee Watson has written a book called Ways to Make Sunshine, which I love. And it's just um, about the main character getting ready to, for her talent show and just going to the swimming pool in the summer and that kind of thing. And so, again, the books that we share inspire, they encourage, and they empower children to see themselves and to find stories that resonate with them. And so not only books that do talk about some of the hard things that children may experience in life due to their, the color of their skin or their different abilities, but also to see stories that uh, make them feel proud to be who they are. Many parents and children have been navigating virtual learning lately. Brave and Kind offers an alternative to screen time, learning from a book. Imagine that. Would you tell us about the Summer Brain Quest series? Oh, we love the Summer Brain Quest series. So that's a fun bridge. They call it bridging book that as children are moving from one glory to the next, it kind of re reiterate some of the things that they learned in that previous grade while building upon the things that they will need to learn as they move into the next grade. So a summer bridge book will be from kindergarten to first grade is the title or from second to third grade. And so it allows us to continue what we like to call in my house mind work, you know, make sure that you're doing some mind work today in addition to all these other things that you'd like to to do and uh, and they look forward to it as well because it is full of it's full of worksheets but also kind of a scavenger hunt with stickers and rewards and they feel a sense of accomplishment after they have completed a particular uh, chapter or section and so that summer brain quest series goes up to a to the sixth grade so from fifth to sixth grade and so 
uh, we had to find something a little bit different for my rising seventh grader. <laughs> Bonnie, were you ever a teacher? I was not a teacher. I went to business school. I graduated from Florida A&M University. So I have a background in business. And after schooling, I worked for some financial institutions. And then I was actually a stay-at-home mom with my kids for a while. And as they began to go to school full-time, I, I, I started to consider what I wanted to do with the literal next chapter of my life and uh, asked myself, what would I do if I knew I could not fail? And this was that coming to fruition. And so as a mom, I really enjoyed finding beautiful and diverse books to read with my own children. I wanted to do something that I knew would leave, or I felt would leave an impact on my community. And opening Brave and Kind was the way that I, I chose to do that. How are you managing? How is this store faring since the lockdown? So we are actually in a very, an interesting situation, as I know that lots of African-American Black businesses have, have not fared very well during this time of COVID-19 and having to close their doors. We have seen quite an uptick in sales over the last, I would say really since the, the death of George Floyd, as people flock to trying to educate themselves about race and looking for materials and, and education uh, to help as a resource with that. And so because lots of people are indoors anyway, and, and like you said, we're having to find alternative ways to supplement our time, many people have turned to books as a way to do that. And specifically as a Black business owner, there have been many kind of lists created as folks try to, to share or folks try to support Black businesses. And ours has been one of those businesses who has been able to, because we pivoted to being an online store, which was never particularly our intention, but certainly necessary. And what we were doing since March, when we were forced to close our doors, has been the recipient of some of that support. Well, it is clearly very important work you're doing, much needed, and congratulations on following your passion. Thank you very much. It has certainly kind of reiterated the vision of the store to celebrate and to elevate diverse stories and really confirmed what I hoped would be something very important to our community. I think your curatorial work is great, and we look forward to when your doors can reopen and Brave and Kind can be a gathering place once again. Thank you very much. That was Bunny Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop, located in Decatur. You can find her suggestions and more about the store on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll hear about 44th and 3rd, another Black-owned bookstore in Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 44th and 3rd Bookseller is a family-owned multicultural bookstore headquartered in Atlanta. 
Two of its founders, Cheryl and Warren Lee, are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting Thank us. Thank you. Yes. Please tell us, where does the name come from, 44th and 3rd? Yes, the name comes from, the 44th comes from the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. Ah. We felt that uh, it would be important in establishing a bookstore that we represent the writings and the history of Barack Obama and his presidency in the bookstore. We had an experience uh, visiting Chicago in 2009 where we went to a, a big box bookstore and found that they had no books on Barack Obama, even though he was a Chicago person and he was the president at that time of the United States. So that's where 44th came from. And then the third represents the three categories of books that we carry in our store. The categories are life, literature, and legacy. And life books are children's books and international books, cookbooks, art and entertainment, self-help books. Literature is fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and classic books of African-American literature. And legacy is history, autobiographies, religion. So that's how we came up with the name and how it's relevant. There's a whole lot that went into the naming of your books. It's, it's mind-boggling. I, I can't believe that there were no books about Barack Obama in a Chicago bookstore, albeit a big box one, in 09. Yes, it surprised us too. I called the manager over. Um, there was a section of the store where they were highlighting local interests. And, you know, they had books on, you know, Scandinavian people of note in uh, Chicago and Italian people of note and Jewish people of note. And these were large collections of books. They were presented as you first walked into the store to the left. And we were there because uh, we were visiting and one of my wife, Carol's uh, cousins wanted to um, buy a book for us that was written by a gentleman who was a, a real estate developer who had assisted Harold Washington um, in his campaign to become the first black mayor of Chicago. So that was our purpose for going there. And we looked in that section of local interest for this book and didn't find it. And coincidentally, we didn't find any books on Barack Obama as well. So we called the manager of the store over and I asked him, I said, look at this section and tell me what's missing. He looked and, you know, I told him, you know, this is Chicago. If President Obama was visiting and came into the store with his friends, he would not see that he was a person of interest, local interest in Chicago. So the point for me was, uh, and I mentioned this to Cheryl and she agreed, that we would take a interest ourselves in making sure that the history, the accomplishments, and the legacy of Barack and Michelle Obama would continue through the collection that we had in our store. In the age of Amazon and Barnes and Noble, the decision to run an independent bookshop clearly is not motivated by profit. I read that this concept was born out of your master's thesis, Cheryl, on the plight of independent bookstores. Would you tell us more about that? This was a paper that I had to do or decided to do as my thesis when I was in graduate school because I'd always had an interest in independent bookstores. And a matter of fact, it was something that I always wanted to do. And I felt that was the perfect opportunity to do the research on a bookstore like that and try and determine whether or not a store, an independent bookstore, could be viable in a environment where we did have, you know, at that time, because this was 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, when we had so many uh, big booksellers. And 
it was interesting that even then, 30 years ago, it was still predicting, there was research predicting that there were ways in which independent bookstores could still thrive because independent booksellers offer different types of opportunities to our customers. I mean, it, we provide a community to our consumers to support local communities. We do curation, our curation of the types of books that we, we collect are much more diverse and a bigger selection than what you could get at, say, a bigger bookseller like a Barnes & Noble or Amazon even. And convening is where we started to promote our stores as an intellectual center for customers convening at our stores. So the research showed that if we could do these types of things, we could be successful. We may not get rich, which isn't why, like you said, we're in the business. We're in the business because we love books and we want to promote the books that we sell. And as I said, you know, and, and you know as well, we sell primarily African-American and African books of the diaspora, the African di diaspora. So that was primarily our uh, motivation 30 years ago when we looked at, first looked into doing this. Were there particular indie bookshops you had in mind, sort of as templates, when you created 44th and 3rd? Well, there's a Marcus Bookstore in Oakland, California. They represent that they're the oldest Black bookstore in the United States. I went to school in San Francisco 30 years ago. At that time, they had two locations, one in San Francisco and one in Oakland. So I was always impressed by, you know, their um, status in the community, their assortment of books. I had a young daughter at the time. We always went there to buy books for her. And it was uh, a good place to meet and talk to people about like-minded subjects. So Marcus Books was one. That was Sofa Books in Washington, D.C., right across the street from Howard University um, campus. And uh, my daughter was the one who actually made us aware of, of that bookstore. So we started going there every time we visited D.C. And it was impressive. They had a, a model where there was the bookstore and cafe as well. Um, but their book collection was, was strong and they were well supported by the community. So that was impressive. And then the third is the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Their store holds a wide variety of uh, black books. So again, when we go to DC, we go there and look at what they have and also talk to the staff there about, you know, what's, what sells and what doesn't sell, but they have a very good displays and a wide variety. So those are three that come to mind as places that, you know, we were, we were looking to emulate to some degree. Oh, indeed. That whole museum, that institution is simply a marvel. Cheryl, you mentioned the importance of community and that independent bookstores are a gathering place for like-minded people. 44th and 3rd Shop has been located in Atlanta's Little Five Points neighborhood since 2017. And I know you had plans to relocate this summer to a new location. How is that situation now? Well, that situation is going very well. We will be relocating to the West End, directly across the street from Morehouse School of Medicine. So we're gonna be pretty much on the campus of the AU Center. So we're very excited about moving there. We're in the process of building out our uh, space and hope to have that opened by the fall. Oh, I think it sounds very exciting. I hope you can indeed open in the fall. Your website offers a selection of audiobooks that encourage visitors to self-educate about racism and anti-racism and amplify Black voices. 
Do you think there are advantages to listening to some stories and reading others? I think that there are. Me, for me personally, I prefer to read because I, I, I prefer to, to actually hold a book and, and read it. And I like that, that feel of holding that book. Now, there are people, and I know uh, we have a book club as well with the store, and uh, some of my members, they prefer to, to do the audio because it's, it saves them, you know, it gives them more time. And so they get a lot from that because it gives them op the opportunity to, uh, when they have free time like that, when you're commuting or if you're, say you're just doing something around the house and you want to listen to the story from um, that aspect of the audiobook. So I think there's just a difference in how you want to enjoy the book or enjoy the story. And like I said, I, I think it's just preference. I think that some of it also has to do with the way we are wired. Cheryl, I, I'm with you. I love holding a book. I like rereading sentences and maybe turning back a few pages if there's something I need to consult. But other people may be better at retaining ideas through audio consumption. It's, I think, also how we're wired. Would you please tell us about your Flavor of the Month section on the website and a few of the titles you offer? We try to focus on something that is relevant to that month for us. For example, last month, it was Juneteenth. So we, we wanted to celebrate Juneteenth by showing books that would be relevant to that subject. This month, is, uh, it's about resilience. So the books that we chose, and my daughter, Elise Lee, who is in graduate school at UGA, she is actually the one that does this, and she does a pretty good job. This month, she chose Resilience, and she chose three books, Long, The Long Walk to Freedom, about Nelson Mandela, by Nelson Mandela, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, and How We Fight White Supremacy by Akiba Solomon and Kenra Rankin. So we just try to choose books that, you know, with everything going on in the society today and in the media today, we felt that these books would be relevant to what we're seeing. And this is what is so welcome about your role as curators and how visitors and consumers benefit from that. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Cheryl Lee, Warren Lee, good luck with moving into the West End and your new expanded space. And thank you for talking with us. Thank, thank you. you. Cheryl Lee and Warren Lee, are the owners of 44th and 3rd Booksellers. There will be information about their reading recommendations and the family-owned store on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Harriet Tubman is best known for the hundreds she led to freedom along the Underground Railroad. Less known is that Tubman served as a spy for the Union Army during the Civil War, a story brought to life in Elizabeth Cobb's novel, The Tubman Command. Cobb's is a professor of history as well as a novelist. I spoke with her while she was in Atlanta during her book tour last year. This was several months before Casey Lemon's movie, Harriet, was released. I guess it's my mission in life to bring to light those stories that do define us as Americans, that are the stories that move our hearts, that 
give us wisdom that help us appreciate where we've come from and where we might go. And I just felt that this was the time to tell a story about Harriet Tubman. Uh, this is my eighth book on American history, and <laughs> it just seemed like this was her moment. This is her moment. Um, she can lead us. You know, I mean, we we're, we're, we feel like we're struggling as a country, and, and Harriet Tubman's right for our times. But you cast this in the form of fiction. Great question, Lois. And I think there, I mean, one of the things I really want people to do is I want readers to feel like they're with Harriet. And I think when we read nonfiction, there's a kind of distance there that, you know, it's a list of facts. And even if we think the facts are important, it doesn't, it doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't enter our, our hearts in the same way that fiction does. And I read once that the stories that you read as stories, you remember better than the things you just learned as a list of facts. And, you know, I want people to feel like they're walking along that road with Harriet Tubman. They're in her ill-fitting shoes. They they know what that's like. They hear the horse's hooves behind them. Uh, you know, they're worried that they're going to get caught, and they and they still go forward. So I... I I know. I, I thought the other the other issue too is that um, it's often the case when we write about the history of people who you know weren't uh, were illiterate. She was illiterate. She never got to write her story. Um, and and what happens often is that we have kind of scanty evidence. We have enough evidence to tell a biography, but not really enough to kind of feel like we've really entered into that person's life. And in this particular story, is about a one week period in Harriet Tubman's life. One week. It's this adventure story. And so, you know, there's not a density of facts there. If I just gave you the facts, you know, the story would be over in about two pages. Mm. But this allows us to, you know, to be on the boat. Oh, with white (laughs) knuckles and nail biting and holding our collective breath. Um, In the afterword, you write, fiction lights the dark corners of evidence. How does the Tubman Command bring light to those corners? I think the Tubman Command uh, brings light to those corners because what we know, for example, about this epic raid she leads in the American Civil War is, you know, we have some description by her that was covered in a later biography. The man who was the uh, commanding officer, James Montgomery, after the raid, he wrote, he wrote one paragraph. <laughs> so it's one paragraph involves 300 U.S. colored troops. It involves Harriet Tubman. It involves all kinds of people who never make it into that one paragraph. So the, the dark corners are things like, you know, who got out and who didn't get out on the raid and uh, what you know, what church did they go into at the end where Harriet Tubman gives this epic speech? And what did she say? I, I read this, you know, article that was written in 1863, you know, June 1863, where a man from Wisconsin, a reporter for Wisconsin, says, the black woman who led the raid gave a speech. She's called Moses. So he doesn't even know her name. And what we can use with fiction is we can we can imagine that speech. We can imagine, what did Harriet Tubman say to people that day? Well, Please tell us a bit about the woman who came to be known as Moses. Well, you know, she is known for the Underground Railroad, and rightly so. She spent 11 years going back, doing what no person in American history other than she did, which is to get all of those people out, never be captured. Uh, she went back to a place she knew well. She went, kept going back to Maryland, the same county, and that's where she where she was from. She kept getting people out of. And some people might think, oh, well, then it might have been easier because she knew she knew the roads. She'd come to learn the past. Yeah, but she could be recognized. I mean, she went and under the noses of the people who were enslaving her family, got people out again and again. One of the points you bring out that is so important to be reminded about is that Maryland um, was half slave, half free. And um, Harriet's family was from the part of Maryland that allowed slavery. Her husband, John Tubman, was a free man of color. And another point you bring out that's so disappointing. I'm not sure I remembered from my American history way back when, was that the Emancipation Proclamation was for people who were enslaved in those states that seceded from the Union. But 
not in northern states, certainly not in Maryland or Kentucky, those states that hadn't seceded. So Harriet Tubman's you know, she's fighting for the Union, literally risking her life. She goes back to South Carolina to serve with the U.S. Army. I mean, she could have stayed back at that. But once the war breaks out, you know, most abolitionists, of course, you know, let the armies do what armies do do, which is to fight out a war. But she went back, and she also went back knowing that, yes, the Emancipation Proclamation, it freed anybody who was in a state that was in rebellion and thus over which the federal government had no control. Uh Loyal slave states like Maryland, like her own, her you know the place she grew up, where she knew people, she still had family. Those people weren't freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. So it was a process, you know. And you know, I always say to my own students, you know, history's not a light switch. You don't go, okay, great, we're all enlightened now, bingo. You know, we're, we're done improving ourselves. In fact, it's a hard-fought process. It's a long process. And Harriet Tubman was willing to be a part of that process. Yeah. Her father had said others accepted how things were. Harriet asked how things could be. Right. She wouldn't take things lying down. You know, and one interesting thing, a lot of people don't know that Harriet Tubman was severely disabled. Yes, and and you bring this out. She suffered from seizures. She did. She had a she when she was a very a young girl. She went into a store, a country store, to get something, and it was sent there. And a a, a boy ran past her and uh, was fleeing. A man who an overseer who was running after the boy, and he yelled out, "You know, hold that kid!" and and she, instead of doing that, she put up her arms and the child escaped behind her. She stood up to this man and he, in his anger, picked up a heavy iron weight and threw it at the boy, missed the kid, but hit her on the head and broke her skull. Now, some people, and she developed what we would today diagnose as temporal lobe epilepsy. So she could lose consciousness and did, you know, multiple times, sometimes a day. And she lost consciousness frequently. Um, and some people said, well, maybe that brain injury, you know, brain injuries have an effect on your on personality and uh, you know, mental uh, um, processing, maybe she couldn't feel fear. But I always say, well, listen, this is a, a girl who stood up to an armed adult white male to defend another child, and that's how she got the injury. So she just, as her daddy would have said, you know, she was born with gumption, yeah. gumption for two. And even as an adult, she never grew beyond five feet tall, a tiny woman and a beauty. She was. And I, so this is not only an adventure story, but it's a love story too, because I think you can't have a historical novel without some love in there. Anyhow, she, yeah, went in the runaway noticed that a Maryland family not long ago, actually, maybe about 15 years ago, found the runaway notice that was posted when Harriet Tubman fled at age, around age 27. It, it called her fine looking. Now, you know, a runaway notice isn't meant as a compliment. It's not like, you look great today, Lois. (laughs) It's like, how do you pick someone out of a crowd? You know, if someone's walking past you on the street, how might you recognize them so you can apprehend them? And, um, you know, the police or whatever, slave catchers. But Harriet Tubman was a very lovely woman. And uh, she was married twice. John Tubman, a free man of color, could have married a free woman of color. and, And sensibly, if he'd been sensible, would have because... To know that your children will be born into slavery is just a cr- tremendous sacrifice any man would make. So he made it because obviously he just thought she was amazing and you know, their marriage didn't last and that's part of what the story's about is her broken heart. And after the war, she marries a, a veteran of the U.S. Colored Troops. And he, I always like to point out, was 20 years her junior. Yes. <laughs> so she was. She must have been something. She was indeed. And clearly these men appreciated that. Harriet thought of the white abolitionist John Brown as a saint. He called her general and referred to Tubman with the pronoun him. How did she feel about that? That's something I thought a lot about, Lois, because I started writing this book after the 2016 election. I was prompted partly by it just because I I think it's women who run for office, women who are leaders are in a an awkward position often. People almost don't want them to be women. They want to just talk like a man, just be a man, and, and then we won't have to worry about the fact you're also a woman. And I think for Harriet, um, when, John, pardon me, when John Brown referred to her with the masculine pronoun, he said something like, I want him leading my, my right flank. It was, I think, 
I don't think it's really a compliment to a woman. No. And I think she probably sucked it up because, you know, it was he was also paying her in many ways a great compliment as a military leader. But it was a military leader that for women comes at the price of your femininity, of your female identity. That has to be in some ways kind of you know, uh, repressed. Uh, in fact, at one point in the story, I say that, you know, Harriet Tubman found the only thing about, about the only thing useful about being a woman is that it was a good disguise. Yes, <laughs> yes, because no one, or I should uh, quote your writing here, no man ever expected what one puny woman could do. That was the secret to her success. Where is Harriet Tubman, and what is the State of the Union Army when this story begins? The story begins, it's set in late May of 1863. Now, that's before Gettysburg, and that's before Vicksburg. It's at a time when nobody knows who's going to win the Civil War. In fact, um, most of the world looking on, Europeans looking on, assume that the, that the South will win. The South is bigger than all of Europe. The 11 Confederate states are bigger than Europe. So the Europeans think, this is no contest, and you know, time will tell, and eventually the South will break off successfully. Um, and so it, the, the fact is, is, what Harriet Tubman, where she is, she's on Port Royal Island, and Port Royal and the Sea Islands are the Union's, you know, tenuous foothold from which they used as a naval base for the blockade of the entire southern coast. So what she's trying to do is to get more men, more colored men, more enslaved men free to join in that army to defend Port Royal and perhaps to launch an attack on Charleston, which, by the way, of all the crazy historical coincidences, her the raid she leads, they limp back in successfully, but they do limp back into Port Royal at the end just as the 54th Massachusetts is sailing down from the north. And that's the regiment you may recall that was featured in the film Glory with Denzel Washington. So that group of brave men who come down and sort of show this is what the U.S. colored troops can do, that they're men of valor. But by the way, that does come right after this um, successful raid Harriet Tubman leads in which um, not a single man is lost. Let's step back a moment. When you portray Harriet from a feminist viewpoint, when people told her she was a hero, quoting from the book, they didn't think of her as a woman, yet she was one. Please tell us about her relationship with Samuel Hayward as you depict in the Tubman Command. Well... (laughs) Harriet Tubman, you know, she said she had a broken heart after her husband. She she left her husband. He wouldn't go with her. You know, he was free and he didn't want to go with her. And she she tried. She came back and tried to get him to come. And he told her he already remarried. He'd married a free woman this time, as if she had any control. Well, of course, but you know, think. Of, and she just broken hearted. And she said to others that that was the moment where she just devoted her. You know, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to make that kind of mistake. And she devoted her life to the Underground Railroad. And in the in the book, I wanted to show that she, however, was tempted, that there were men, had always been men, who found her interesting. And so I developed the story, a side story of her uh, interest in and mutual and the mutual interest uh, that a man who actually was under her command, Samuel Hayward. Uh, so in, at the end of the book, I give you an epilogue, like, what's real, what's not real? What are we just making up? And what? Because we're not going fiction. to reveal. We're it. not going to tell you no. now. We're not going to tell you. <laughs> you have to read it. Oh, I've had so, so fun. I had so much fun sharing this with my friends as I was writing. They're like, oh, are they going to, well, what's going to? So, romance. Yeah, so. Romance history novel. <laughs> well, you know, I think Harriet Tubman deserves that. I think we do a disservice you know, to women or to any of our heroes when we pretend like they're, you know, fake human beings. And and in a way, we also let ourselves off the hook. We think, well, you know, I'm just a person. That was some saint who was just born, right. came out of Zeus's head yes. as a perfect goddess. Must be neutered. Must be neutered. And especially <laughs> with women, we tend, we have this weird thing, like we disrespect women for for their sexuality. You know, with men, you know, men can have all their affairs. We, it is the old sort of double standard. So I think, you know, Harriet Tubman deserves to be loved and admired in all her dimensions for the things she gave up, for the sacrifices she made, for the things she wanted. She, you know, she's, she wanted to be loved for herself, too, not just for 
doing everything she did for others. And yet, because of the clandestine nature of her work for all those years on the Underground Railroad, she was forced to keep secrets, to know how to keep secrets. And as pointed out in the book, this made it difficult for her to be a real friend. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've all, I think, heard the stories about the CIA officers, right, who can't even talk to their wives. And I think that for a deeply religious person, as Harriet Tubman was, there were probably a lot of layers of, you know, cognitive dissonance, we might say, of, you know, having to be a liar all the time, not being able to confide in people you cared about, cared for. You know, loose lips sink ships. In this case, they're real ships. <laughs> Literally. Gunships of the of the Union Army penetrating the Cumbia River of South Carolina. You know, and if you, if you tell the wrong person and the word gets to the wrong ear, set of ears, you know, you've, you've doomed this mission. You've doomed the first major mission of, of black troops in South Carolina. It was hard for her. And I wanted to portray her because I think it's just natural. And she, I'm sure she was a conflicted you know, we're all conflicted, and she had regrets and things she wasn't sure if she did right. And, you know, any person who ran away left someone behind. People chewed off their families like, you know, a fox chews off a leg in a trap. You had to. And there's just something just so heartbreaking. No, Nobody in that situation can ever feel like a saint. You know, haven't, haven't you? I know I have. Times where you had to, to say, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. Yes. And, um Great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's the classic modern metaphor. It's not in the book. The book is all historically no, accurate. It but. is. If you are just joining us, I'm talking with Professor Elizabeth Cobbs about her new book, The Tubman Command. We were talking about Samuel Hayward and the relationship you depict Samuel Hayward has with Harriet Tubman in this story. Samuel was highly skilled at operating a boat. He was called a waterman instead of a sailor. That was the term, waterman, which is why he became one of the three scouts to go on this secret mission. Would you describe their clandestine work and the situation they faced? Well, so, you know, this the Union Army and the Union Navy is on Port Royal Island, but they, they need intelligence. And actually, it was Robert E. Lee writing that same month to a, another officer about something else who said, we know that the chief source of intelligence to the enemy is our Negroes. That's his phrase, you know, Negroes being equivalent to slaves in the parlance of the time. So that's who's providing the intelligence. But you've got to get in there to get it. So one of the things that people like Samuel Hayward and Walter Plowden, and, and these are men, by the way, who in her, who Harriet Tubman lists in her later petition to the U.S. Congress for a pension. She receives a military pension, and she lists the seven or eight men who are under her command by name. And uh, what these people are, what they do is that they, my gosh, you know, they get on these boats and they infiltrate into, the, into South Carolina, which, you know, in the case of this raid they take, they have to go 25 miles up this Blackwater River. Uh, now, there's a Confederate Army camp, two, uh, 2,000 men uh, camped 10 miles away, very close. Could have been there very, very shortly. So it takes them all day to get up river and back. So they have the supreme intelligence that they develop for this raid. And how the South defends its, the Confederacy, I should say, defends its waterways is, um, is by putting mines, underwater mines in them. So part of what they have to do is figure out where are the mines? You know, uh, how, do, how do we not get blown up? Right, you have gunships and they're wooden ferry boats. By the way, we say gunships. We're thinking of something pretty impressive, but the North, uh, the the Union is commissioning all kinds of ships and repurposing them, and they have these ferry boats uh, that they take up armed uh, up the waterways in the dark and diving, you know, in these waters where the torpedoes could blow them to smithereens at any moment. At one point, the character Walter says that he can't tell if they're safer with the Johnnies or the Union. Harriet replies, they are not safe anywhere, but in one they're slaves, the other free. The suspense builds at 
quite a pace as Harriet makes her way onto the Lowndes plantation with an overseer notorious for his brutality, even among the brutal. After returning with essential intelligence for the mission, she is adamant with the colonel that it should be the black soldiers who take the fight ashore. Why did she feel so adamant about that? Because there was this lie that had been perpetrated continuously by slave owners that, that people who were enslaved wanted it. Wanted this, they to wanted be it. They, I mean, it's it's like it's like old accusations about rape. You know, someone wanted it, and so it's just this heinous lie. And <clears throat> part of what Harriet Tubman really wanted to to show is that these were men who were going to show in their actions exactly what they felt about slavery. They were going back, and this time they were armed. Uh, by the way, when the raid was over, Harriet Tubman actually asked somebody to write on her behalf because she was illiterate. So she wrote a letter. Someone wrote it down for her and sent it to the to the Boston Commonwealth newspaper. And uh, she, typically of her, she didn't claim credit for anything she had done. But she said, you know, we've talked a lot about the white officers who led this raid. Let's talk about the 300 colored soldiers who were aboard, who took the, shore, who took the fight ashore. And this was before the sort of glory 54th Massachusetts um, great sacrifice that was not a, was truly a pyrrhic victory because they were unable to conquer the fort wagner but um in this case you know she really wanted it to be clear it was really important to give these men the honor and for military people that is how they see it um i i wrote my last book was about the hello girls of world war one and i think those of us who are civilians it's hard i'm a civilian hard for me to understand the sort of military outlook but for people who are in the military they'll tell you this is the honor it's the honor to be given this chance to lead the assault and uh, and so she wanted that for them historian and author elizabeth cobb's novel is titled the tubman command you've been listening to city life our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Carl Anthony and Leatrice Elsie. They'll tell us about a new series as part of the virtual offerings at Hammond's House Museum. Conversations about jazz with Carl Anthony. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Stephen Key produced the segments on the Black Booksellers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.